Hi, welcome to More Life, the Reentry podcast, a podcast about offender reentry reform and advocacy. And I'm your host, Vinkidia Gardner. Thank you for joining me today. On today's episode, we are going to be continuing into our Women's History Month series. Um, And just a reminder where we will be honoring the different women that have contributed to our history, um, American history. Uh, But More Life is really focusing on acknowledging women as they transition from incarceration into the community uh, by just bringing awareness to the unique challenges of women involved in the criminal justice system, um, discussing solutions for supporting these women and just celebrating the overall successes of women who have been able to successfully transition and transform. Um, So in today's topic, we're going to be looking at a different area of women that are involved in the criminal justice system, and that's looking more at the pathways to desistance, um, really trying to understand some of these unique challenges, what we can do um, to better support these women, and just moving beyond some of the traditional and conventional concepts that we generally talk about in the criminal justice system. So for to do that today, I have a guest with me whose name is Dr. Susan Sered. Um, she is a professor of sociology at Suffolk University in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, she is also the author of more than half a dozen books, including Uninsured in America, Life and Death in the Land of Opportunity, and can't Catch a Break, Gender, Jail, Drugs, and the Limits of Personal Responsibility. Her research has taken her from an immigrant neighborhood in Jerusalem to a fishing village in, I'm not going to say the city correctly, so I'm going to say Japan, um, to homeless shelters in Boston, and she's committed to both scholarship and social justice. Um, her work closely, she works closely with advocacy and community organizations on issues of health, gender equity, and ending mass incarceration. So Dr. Sered, we are so thankful for you, for to have you on the show to, you know, just share your expertise and share your experiences. Um, so thank you. And thank you for inviting me. Yes, always. Um, it's always a pleasure to have people on to discuss reentry. There's so many different lenses and so many different perspectives um, and just so many different areas that, you know, people mm-hmm. can really learn about. So just really grateful to have you here. Um, and before we jump like into what our conversation will focus on today, I really want to just start with what got you interested in working with justice-involved women, or how did you get to this area of research? That's a really interesting question. Um, It's not something that I had done earlier in my career. I'd always been interested in women's experiences, but I had not worked with this kind of community or population. My previous study had been a study of how Americans without health insurance managed to access healthcare. And I had done research all around the country. And one of the things that I figured out, um, particularly in states like Texas, Idaho, states with you know really no safety nets, um, people don't access healthcare. And I was meeting people who you know, went to the emergency room with rectal bleeding, were diagnosed with cancer and sent home to die. And at some point I asked myself, you know, with 60 million Americans, and this was before Obamacare, so 60, 65 million Americans who don't have health insurance and double that number with lousy health insurance, why don't we see dead bodies on the streets every morning? Like you'd expect that there would just be, 
you know, litter of dead bodies. This is, I mean, I was speaking with people who absolutely could not access care. It wasn't that it was, they had to, you know, go into debt to get the care. They couldn't access care. And so I started to think about where are we hiding the dying bodies in America? And I just happened to come across an article about mass incarceration. I said, ah, maybe that's where we're hiding the bodies in um, jails and prisons. So I began to read about mass incarceration. As I said, that was not something that had been my work until it became kind of my my um, commitment in terms of social justice advocacy and my academic passion. And now it's almost 20 years that I've been working in this area. Um, I started to read whatever I could find, and I found a lot written about how prison harms people's health. But I was wondering if people who are sick are more likely to end up in prison. In other words, is poor health a risk factor for incarceration? And that question hadn't really been asked at the time, and there was very little work on it. But I found one tiny study, I don't remember where it had been done, of the intake um, exams of women in some prison or jail in America. So this was before they were in prison, as they were on their way in. And their health was just so much worse than typical health for women of the same age in the same area. And they were coming into prison with just an incredible load of not just mental illness, which is talked about a lot, but physical illness, severe arthritis, crippling arthritis, terrible asthma, high rates of cancer, um, chronic urinary tract infections, I mean, serious illnesses. And um, so that's kind of what got me interested in transitioning from thinking about health and illness and women's experiences with health and illness to thinking about incarceration. So the next step in the process for me was back in Massachusetts. I had just gotten a job at Suffolk University in a sociology department where most of the students wanted to be cops when they grow up. And I realized, you know, if this is where I'm going to be for my career, I think I need to start working in things that are closer to what our students are interested in. I had a colleague who had done work on um, women and sex work. And she and I decided that we would interview women who had just gotten out of prison. And um, we found you know, an easy pool of women at a facility that women were being paroled to from the one state prison in Massachusetts. And we did really in-depth interviews with them. I think it was something like 65 women. We asked, our interview began with, what's the first time in your life you remember being sick? Up to, how are you feeling right now? It was really a life history. One of our questions was, has it ever happened that you needed to see a doctor but weren't able to? And I was sure that everyone was gonna say yes. Either they couldn't afford it or doctors don't want to treat people like me who are on the streets. And much to my surprise, and this is a Massachusetts phenomenon, maybe one woman said yes. Overwhelmingly, the women said this had never happened to them. And the reality is that women are able to access medical care in Massachusetts. You know, Massachusetts was the... Um, it was the model for Obamacare. We had Romney care in Massachusetts and they were accessing healthcare and overwhelmingly the women had been seeing therapists since they were little kids. They'd had tons of treatment in their lives. 
So that opened up a whole set of questions. So here are these women in a state that has really high per capita numbers of doctors and therapists. And these women are still, they're a mess. Their lives are a mess. They're still circulating in and out of prison. What's going on? And clearly treatment is not the whole story of what's needed. So that's what started the work for me. Okay, so you're, you originally were in a different area and then you moved to this area just by doing some reading, some additional uh, education. And that's what you have found passionate now, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that I, I was interested in health and realized that, um, you know, we really have a caste system in America regarding health and that the population that cycles through the correctional system is just about the sickest population, just it's, has the one of the biggest loads of poor health. Yeah, it definitely does. And I, I know in some of the, not even just the research that I've been reading, but also people that I've had on my podcast, like a lot of people have pre-existing health conditions before they come into prison um, yeah. or detrimental health um, before they come into prison. So I guess my question for you now is, given the description that you just did of how some of these women already come in with some of these pre-existing conditions, hmm. how does incarceration exacerbate those health conditions um, make or make them worse? So, so let me speak specifically about women because I haven't done any work with men and um, women for the most part serve shorter sentences because the, the charges, um, you know, that they're sentenced for tend to be lower level charges. So I, I think experiences might be different for people who serve 50 years in prison. Most of the women that I've come to know, and I'll talk about the women I know in a few minutes, um, are in jail or prison anywhere from three months to a year, maybe a year and a half. That's typical. Oh, and, and it destroys their health. So overwhelmingly, they're on psychiatric medications when they enter prison. And typically the policy of the prison is to take everybody off of every psych med that they had before coming in. And a lot of the psychiatric medication people take, you detox from. You get kind of sick when you're taking taken off them. So they're taken off of all their meds and then reevaluated and then put on other meds, which often need time to be able to ramp up on. So there's this absolute disruption in psychiatric medication. Let's just start with that. That's like, you know, that's the big picture kind of thing. Some women are not given appropriate medication. Um, there are certain kinds of medication that women that I know feel are really important to their well-being that the prison doesn't allow. Um, pretty much most of the anti-anxiety medication and um, prison increases people's anxiety and then not being able to have anti-anxiety medication is really rough. But many of the women say the meds that they're given are um, ones that make them loopy. You know, what I would call chemical restraints. Um, so women are given antipsychotics, women who, as far as I can see, have never been diagnosed with a psychosis. So that wrecks their health. Other things that wreck their health, really common um, to leave prison with MRSA, with you know antibiotic-resistant infections, women who entered prison without those things. Some kinds of conditions do improve. Women can get care for them, which in Massachusetts they can get on the outside also. Um, 
you know, so I can't say the prison is this blessing that all of a sudden they have access to good health care. I think in some other states that might be a bit different. And then the other set of health-related issues um, and that are impacted by incarceration are um, reproductive health. So women coming into pregnant into prison pregnant, not able to get adequate prenatal care. Massachusetts now has a law against shackling women during labor, but it's not observed. And there are women, sometimes it is, but there are still women who are giving birth in shackles. And um, their babies are taken away from them after birth. And that is very detrimental to women's health. You know, your body is producing milk. Your hormones have set you up to take care of a baby and that baby is taken away from you. Um, And realizing that women are serving short sentences, they know they're going to get out. They're going to get out in a few months, but they've lost that intense physical and emotional bonding with their babies. So all in all, I would say prison has a pretty negative impact on women's health. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's safe to assume. And, um, and I agree with that as well. And I guess before I even ask about just like generally how incarceration harms women, um, or maybe this may be the appropriate time to ask before we go into actually re-entry then, um, I guess outside of the health realm, what other areas are women impacted by because of incarceration? Okay, so we'll talk about that briefly because my work really is the post-incarceration work. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, I think the main effect of incarceration, the main negative effect of incarceration for women is losing their children. Okay. I mean, everything else just pales in comparison. And many of the women whom I know had custody of their children and many didn't have custody, but um, were still able to see their children. So it was the father of the children who had custody or a grandmother who had custody. So whenever they were, you know, not super stoned or not, you know, in really bad shape, they were with their children and certainly would be at their children's birthdays and buy their children's presents. They were, they had, a, they were part of their children's lives and they go to prison and that is the end. And um, women are much less likely to be visited in prison than men because the people who go to visit people in prison are women. And unfortunately for many of the women, the men in their lives have prison records. So they're not allowed to come to the prison. And if there's a grandmother who would come, like the woman's mother would come, but she's now taking care of the kids probably doesn't have a car. The one women's prison in Massachusetts is not that easy to get to by public transportation. It's not in Boston. Um, So I would say losing children is just overwhelmingly the thing. And then of course, if you're sentenced over a year, your child is likely to be put up for adoption. Um, The second thing that really impacts women um, when they're incarcerated is loss of housing. So many women were homeless before, you know, that's, Yes, but many were not. And you lose your housing. And when you lose your housing because you go to prison, you don't have money to put things into storage. You lose everything. So you lose your children's immunization record. You lose your driver's license. You lose, you know, the lovely card that your favorite aunt sent you before she died. You Plus, you lose your pots and pans and sheets and towels and clothes and underwear and everything you own. So 
children and housing are just at the top of the list. Yeah, I would have to agree in the research that I've seen um, because a lot of women, when they go to prison, they are parents. Um, and so that loss of a child, that loss of that connection and then housing as well, um, it's just big issues or when you're thinking about reentry and when you're thinking about women. So I guess if we're moving on to like actually, you know, reentry and things like that, you have these women that are coming out, that come in with pre-existing conditions. They worsen when they get into prison. Now they're released. What happens? <laughs> so I'll talk a little bit about the study that I've been doing. Um, it's a study that's been going on for 15 years. And I, um, together with a colleague named Maureen Norton Hawk, she um, has since retired. Um, we um, hung out at a number of places that we knew that women who had recently been in prison would hang out at a, a drop-in center for women and a, a halfway house. And we enlisted at the time, it was 47 women in a study that we told them would be a five-year study. And we told them that, you know, we would give them a public transportation pass each month and that um, we'd like to speak with them each month and just hear how their lives are going and answer questions about their health, their children, their housing. Have they had continued criminal legal involvement? Um, just sort of what's going on in their lives. We wanted to get a longer view of what happens in women's lives after incarceration. And I want to say that one of the things that brought me to this interest in doing something long-term is that I had begun to read about recidivism. And as remember, I hadn't come from this field. I'd really come from medical sociology. So I began to read about recidivism. And I somehow had been able to get from the Massachusetts Department of Correction the names of all the women who had been released from the um, the one um, women's prison in Massachusetts in the year, the year 1995, I think it was. And I went to the Department of Vital Records and looked the women up. I was able to find death records for 18% of the women who had been released 15, 10 years, I think maybe it was 10 years earlier, 15 years earlier, um, let's just say a dozen years earlier, I was able to find death records for 18% of the women. And I'm sure that more were dead, but I didn't have the right spelling of the name where they died in Rhode Island or in New Hampshire and not in Massachusetts. So I think probably a fair estimate is about 25% of the women were dead. Now, here's the really interesting thing about recidivism. Those dead women all count as success stories. They didn't recidivate. They weren't arrested again. They were dead and buried or cremated and in a jar, but they didn't recidivate. So they count as success stories. They enter the statistics as non-recidivators. And that blew my mind. Blew my mind. And so that is a big part of what sent me on this sort of longer term project somewhere between 20 and 25% of women are dead within 10 years of being released from prison. We're not talking about old women. We're talking about women in their thirties. What is going on? Um, 
Well, the five-year study turned into a 15-year study, and I'm still in touch with the same women. Many have died. Many have died. I actually yesterday wrote a eulogy for one more who died. Women I've been in touch with for 15 years are, are really, I know them better than a lot of my close friends. And, you know, one of the things I'm often asked is, so do some of the women succeed? Like, what is the path to successful re-entry? And I don't think I have a good answer to that. Um, one of the questions that I asked the women one of the first times that I met them, it was on sort of a structured questionnaire, was, what do you think your life will be like in five years? And most of the women answered that as, what do they dream their lives will be like? Only a couple said probably the same shit as now. I mean, probably 43 out of the 47 described what they hoped their lives would be like. And overwhelmingly, it was, have my children back with me, have a house, have a job. Those were the three main things. And then some said, be married. And some described the house, a white picket fence and things that have a dog. They were describing really middle-class, kind of stereotypical 1950s lives. I can tell you that um, none of them have that or anything even approaching that 15 years later. That's just not something that anybody has been able to um, obtain. Um, so what are their lives like 15 years later? And can I see distinctions in paths that women followed? Are there things that might have predicted how women are gonna do 15 years down the line? Very little. Let me tell you the couple things that seem really relevant to me. Um, having a family that sticks by you is probably the most important factor. Um, now, that doesn't mean a family has to stick by you through thick and thin. It means that a family sticks by you in the sense that when you're not actively using, you're welcome to come and stay with them. That you're part, you're still seen as part of the family. Um, and not all women have that. So I guess here's the other sort of interesting observation. And remember, this is 47 women, so there's no statistical significance. The Black women, more than the white women, were likely to have family who stuck by them. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. Um, and some of these might be unique to Massachusetts. Um, I think that for the black women more than the white women, there was less shame in the families. The families were less embarrassed that their daughters were in jail because there's such high incarceration rates in their communities that everyone knows people who are in jail and everyone knows perfectly good, decent, hardworking, kind, honest people who are in jail. There's just less stigma around jail because of the reality of rates of, of mass incarceration and racist policies. But I think that there's another reason. So Massachusetts is, is a um, enormously white state. There's very low numbers of people of color. So black women are overrepresented in prison, but it's still a very small number of black women who are in prison. It's mostly white women. One of the things that I note, and this is anecdotal, remember it's no statistical significance, is many more of the black women were arrested the first time they did something bad. So the first time they were caught dealing drugs, they were arrested and they were incarcerated. 
For the white women, it typically was the case that the first 10 times they were caught doing something illicit, the police took them home, took them back to the station to sober up, gave them a second chance. Their parents um, civilly committed them for drug treatment. So it, it took a real effort on the part of white women to end up in prison. So again, I don't wanna overstate this, but I would say that overall, the black women had poor physical health and they have been more likely to die in the time that I've known them from physical health problems. The white women had substantially worse mental health challenges. Um, many of the white women have spent far more of their lives in psychiatric institutions than in jails and prisons. Um, many more of the white women's start of a life of crime, you know, it's, was because they were abused within their families and ran away from home and then got picked up by a pimp on the streets. And that was just not the story that I heard really from any of the black women. I mean, the story that I would hear from the black women was more likely, you know, they had trouble in school, but, you know, they were sexually assaulted, but their mothers helped them. So really a, a kind of cultural difference that was very much shaped by how the police were treating young black and young white women. I think that um, that's pretty interesting because most of the time the story that I hear is very opposite. Yeah, so, I mean, that's one piece of the project. Um, you know, when I look 15 years down the line, what have women achieved? What have they not achieved from the things that they dreamt of? At this point, there's, okay, there's quite a few women who are dead. So I'm, out of the 47 women, I think somewhere between 10 and 15 are dead. Um, but most of the women are now housed. And almost nobody was housed when I met them. I think actually nobody was. They were all unhoused when I met them. And housing was their first priority. And almost all of them are housed. Now, it doesn't mean they have good housing or secure housing, but almost all of them are housed. And there's a number of reasons for that. Some of them, enough years have elapsed that they're now senior citizens and they became eligible for senior housing. Or some of them have had such deteriorations in their health that they're now eligible for disabled people's housing. Um, one woman, really an interesting story, um, her children grew up and got college degrees and moved into kind of settled, very successful adult lives and felt that it was appropriate for them to arrange housing for their mother, which they hadn't been able to do when they were 16. But by the time they were in their mid twenties, they were able to, and you know, we're not talking superb housing. We're talking about a room in a rooming house, but that's different. That's better than the streets and better than the shelters. Um, some of the women have, um, I would say, kind of a serial monogamy pattern where they'll be involved with a man for maybe two years and they'll live with him and really embrace being a housewife and they'll take care of his kids and his grandkids and bake and cook and make holiday parties. And then at some point, the relationship falls apart because he beats her up or he's a stalker or he kicks her out or something. But she'll 
so one woman I'm particularly thinking of, I call her um, Francesca in my writings, um, which I'll talk about in a minute. Her kids now have a apartment, so she can go stay with her adult kids until she hooks up with the next man for the next couple of years. So she's not on the streets anymore. So there's a number of patterns of how they've gotten housing. In a few cases, women were on the list for subsidized housing or public housing for, it's about a 10 year wait. So they made it through the 10 years and they they got housing. Um, so housing, it took 15 years, but I would say that most of the women are somewhat stably housed in not great, but better than nothing housing. And, you know, and that, I think that that is great because I, it's better than being on the street, like you said, mm -hmm. but how is there a 10 year wait list for housing? Like, how is that a thing? Yeah. And worse than that, there's priority if you have children, but being homeless with children is a cause for having your kids taken away from you. It's considered negligence. Right. So. Yeah. And some, and some women, I can imagine they're, if they were, you know, they went to prison and they come back out, their kids are probably either in the foster care already um, with some other parent that has custodial rights. So mm -hmm. you can't even move yourself up to the priority list because no. you don't have your children. It's, it's, the housing is, I would say that for the first 10 years, the main thing that women wanted to talk to me about was housing. When I would say, what's going on in your life? What are the things you're dealing with? You know, there could be some new boyfriend or some old abusive boyfriend, but it was housing, housing, housing. Um, and I said, it took an unreasonable amount of time, but most of the women are semi-settled in housing. Um, as I said, some of them in relationships that would not be legally considered sex work, but they're living with a man they may or may not like a whole lot. And, mm -hmm. you know, kind of being a wife and housekeeper and, you know, but it's a place. I um, need a place to stay. Need a place to stay. Need a place to stay. Now, in contrast to housing, jobs, the okay. rate of kind of success in having a job, I, I would call success a job that lasts for more than six months and pays close enough to a living wage that with some kind of food stamps or other assistance, you can survive. The rate for that, you want to make a guess? Talking percentages? Yeah. 35? Zero. Zero. I, I definitely was not thinking zero. And that's where there's a real different experience for men. That men are do get jobs at higher rates. Women just do not get jobs. And I don't know if you have any like information about, but why is that? Yeah, well, there's a lot of reasons the women are not getting jobs. So remember, men are arrested for many reasons. I mean, many men are arrested for the crime of being black. Mm -hmm. Men are arrested for getting involved in gangs and holding up convenience stores. They get arrested for all kinds of stuff. 
women overwhelmingly are arrested for being sick, you know, for having serious physical and mental health challenges. Um, a really high number of the women in the study had been in special ed when they were kids. Um, that stuff doesn't change. You get out of jail and you still have serious health problems. So how are you going to be able to get a job? So the housing much more often is arranged through some kind of government assistance, some kind of government subsidy, some kind of government housing, or a man who has an interest in taking the woman in, or in some cases, adult children who now are mature enough and independent enough to work thing, help work things out. Jobs, you're pretty much dependent on the private sector. So here you are, you're a woman with no job history. You've been in jail. You have a long history of substance abuse issues and mental health issues. You might not have good um, cognitive skills. You might never have really learned to use a computer, which is something that you need even to check in your time card at a supermarket if you're gonna work as a bagger. But more than that, the kinds of jobs that women get and that women are trained for in prison in the, in the tiny amount of vocational training they give in prison are jobs that are almost always closed to people with a prison record. So a lot of the women trained to be cosmet is a cosmetician or cosmetologist? Cosmetology. Cos cosmetology. You pretty much can't work in cosmetology with a prison record in Massachusetts. Right, because of the licensure, collateral consequences. And so um, the kinds of jobs that a lot of the women really would thrive at and want is working with the elderly, working with children, working with disabled. A lot of the women I know love to cook. They love taking care of people. They would be very good at these things. And they might get fired, but once their criminal record check goes through, they're, they're fired. So men more easily can get jobs doing things. Like I, what I see is a lot of their boyfriends have jobs with moving companies, like loading trucks, loading furniture um, on construction sites, these kind of traditional male jobs that don't have customer contact and that just need physical strength. And in the pink collar world, the women cannot get jobs. They just can't get jobs. Now, the one kind of job they can get, and they've all done this, is they can get jobs at fast food places. Mm -hmm. Those jobs are great until they are sexually harassed by their manager or by a customer or by both. And that just happens. It just happens over and over and over again. Or until she slips on the grease on the floor and breaks her leg or until she can't go to work for a few days because she has to get a signature at a 12-step meeting that she went to her meeting and she has to be able to show those signatures to her parole officer so she misses a few days' work and then she's fired. But these jobs do not last. So, yeah, jobs just 0%. So when we talk about desistance and successful reentry and what people need to do and how important jobs are, there's nothing that's within their power that they can do that will get them a job. And, you know, and that's really sad to hear because um, what I'm hearing is not only do women have, they're likely to have a lot of inconsistencies 
in their job history, the -hmm. jobs that they are able to get, there's going to be some type of harassment or some type of interference to where they're not going to be able to maintain that job, whether it's parole conditions, whether it's some type of health condition um, or tension or conflict at work. Uh, And then the jobs that they're trained for, they're not even eligible for Mm -hmm. due to their status of a criminal record. So, I see why the rate is zero percent. There, there's no, there's not a lot of opportunities for mm-hmm. these women to be able to thrive. So what are um, and it's so what are they supposed to do, um, to survive? That's a really good question. You know, at, at at the age that the women in my study are now, and most of them are in their fifties and moving into their sixties, even because it's been fifteen years since they got out of prison and. Massachusetts is slow to incarcerate. So women were getting out of prison in their mid to late thirties. There was only one woman in her twenties when she entered the study. Um, They're getting by on disability, food stamps. You know, if they have a boyfriend, some help from the boyfriend, if they have kids, some help from the kids. No, they're, they're not really, they're not thriving. Um, Massachusetts has pretty robust social services um, you know, I'm sure you're well aware of the um, the food bank bingo. You know, so you go to five different food banks because each one gives you enough food for about two days. So that takes up a lot of time going to the food banks. It, it's not good. It's not the image of a house and my children and, you know, a job and a white picket fence. It's really the lot. Their lives are pretty bleak and pretty limited. I see that a number of the women who did get some kind of housing um, also were unhappy because they couldn't get a job. They didn't have money to really go anywhere or do anything. And they were socially isolated and bored. And, you know, how much time can you just spend sitting by yourself in your studio apartment watching television? So eventually, you know, they go back to where they used to hang out and then they start smoking crack or then they start doing something and then they lose their housing and the cycle repeats. Yeah. So, you know, I think in the time we have left, what I'd really like to talk about is what I think would help. Yes. And I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's a good segue of we've talked about what is happening. What are these women's lives looking like post-incarceration? So what can we do to not only better support, but to try to make some changes to where they can thrive in a where they're comfortable, what they are comfortable with. Yes, yeah. So I think that's the million-dollar question, which is much cheaper than the billion-dollar question of paying for prison. Yes. You know, I think as a sociologist, I think I have a pretty strong sense of what people need to thrive. And to thrive, people need a secure place to live, a place to call home. We humans are kind of homing creatures. We like, we're comfortable when we have a place to call home, um, that we know that we can lay our head down every night and this is where we belong. Um, We humans are social. We need to be surrounded by people. We are social creatures. Um, You know, from the minute that a baby is born, it's immersed in a social environment. If you ever watched 
um, Animal Planet shows and you see when a baby horse is born, it can immediately stand up and crawl to get milk from its mother. Human babies are, they're useless until they're about three. They pretty much need to be held all the time. And we are very, very social creatures. Language is essential to what it means to be a human. So I think that ensuring that women are have housing and are housed in situations where there are social interactions that are available. And ideally those social interactions are with people they love and people who love them and people who care about them. But I think that having social interactions is really, really key. A sense of belonging, a sense of being part of something. And then another aspect of being human is that we humans really like to feel that our life has meaning. Like it's sort of an essence of being a human. You know, my lovely puppy dog, who I think is just a genius, doesn't think about the meaning of life. We humans do think about the meaning of life. And a big part of that for humans is that we feel good when we can be useful. I think for most of us, the worst kind of day we have is a day in which we do nothing and accomplish nothing. We like to do stuff. We like to make things happen. And I hear from the women in my study that what makes them the happiest is to help other people. I can't tell you with how much pride they'll talk about giving their last cigarette to someone who's more destitute than they are. So I think that setting up opportunities where women can do things that are meaningful and particularly things that contribute to society and help others, I think that's the path to keeping people in good mental health and keeping people stable. So what I would love to see cities invest in is extensive programs of volunteer work, things similar to AmeriCorps or Teach for America, that could be made available long-term to people coming out of the criminal legal system, where you have some place to go every day in which you did something that was valued. And, you know, working at McDonald's isn't valued. Um, and I think that there are ways to do this. I think that with creative thinking, cities could come up with phenomenal projects that people could feel part of something, feel that they're contributing to something, contribute to something. And other people would see them contributing to something. There'd be a reason to get up in the morning. There'd be something more compelling in life than going and hanging out of the park and looking to see if anybody has any crack. Um, do something that's good and worthwhile and your kids will want to be in your lives. Your family will want to be in your lives. Why would your kids want to see you in a, in a dumpy room in a rooming house with a bunch of strange men hanging around the door? So I do think that there are solutions, but I think that, that extensive long-term programs of meaningful volunteer work that can help people build a strong sense of self um, and that really does contribute to the well-being of society, whether this is in urban farms or whether this is in community-run food banks or kitchens. Um, I think there's a lot of ways of doing this. It could be in cleaning up the streets, but together with classes in environmental justice. And these are, these are meaningful, realistic, inexpensive 
solutions that have to be coupled with secure housing. So that's secure housing. Nobody can do anything every day. Um, so. I think I think that's a great idea. Um, actually, an idea that I've never heard before. Uh, well, let me not say never heard before, but people haven't talked about as much uh, because there is so much value in sense of self and sense of purpose. And I feel like a lot of people, at least people that I have interacted with that are involved in the legal system, um, they come out feeling like they don't have any purpose. They come out in their that sense of self is gone. Um, and trying to find that um, can be trying to find that or having that reestablishing it can be, you know, a motivator for them to continue on the path that they're on or seek a new direction that will put them on that path rather than returning or reverting back to some of old habits um, because they can't access certain things or, you know, does that make sense? So it's a combination of being told that you're a loser from the time that you're a kid and struggled in school to an the reality of a prison record, a terrible economy, an absence of jobs that treat workers with respect and pay living wages. That combination really puts people in a in a horrible situation. Um, one of the things that I've thought about a lot is women, I think more than men, they don't get as much vocational training, but they're sent to all these programs of like gender responsive programs to learn to stand up for yourself and how not to be a victim. And one of the things that I hear women say in almost like a parrot-like way, it's, it's you know, they've clearly been told this over and over again in programs is you need to make yourself first. And one of the funniest things that for me was a tip off in the study was several women within a few weeks said to me, you know, my problem is I always put other people before me and I need to put myself first. And they said, you know, like when you're in a plane and the pilot says, you have to put the oxygen mask on your first on yourself first before you put it on others. That's what we have to do. None of these women have ever gone on a plane. They don't know what an oxygen mask is. This was just rhetoric in various programs. Now, when I ask the women in other settings, what do you see as your best qualities? Like, what do you like about yourself? The answer from almost everybody is, I have a good heart. I like to help others. So here are women. Their greatest strength is a good heart. I like to help others. And in their programs, they're told, no, that's really a bad thing. When you need your problem, your problem is you don't put yourself first. You need to put yourself first. I'd like to see resources going into making it possible for women who see themselves as caring good people with good hearts to use that to help others, to build jobs, to build a life, to build a community. Let's, let's build on the strengths rather than knock down what women see as their greatest attribute and then tell them what put an oxygen mask on yourself first at yeah, so very strengths-based approach, you know, relying on what are your strengths and using those to your advantage. And respect those strengths. Right. Respect those strengths. And I think that's really so important. So no, it, um, yeah. Go that's ahead. what I've learned. 
No, I think that, and I think that's absolutely great. Um, and those are really, like you said, very inexpensive things that can be done, um, that can be put together. Um, I'm wondering, do you have any ideas about on a more community level, um, individual policy level of what needs to be done? I know we've talked a little bit, we've talked about housing, um, I guess any other things? So, I mean, on a policy level, we have to just get rid of all of these statutes and regulations that, you know, stop people from being able to build a life once they've served their time. I mean, and then we have to, on a policy level, just stop arresting so many people and we have to stop, get rid of mandatory minimums. And I, these are all things that every, you know, everyone who's listening to this podcast knows about. On an individual level, I don't think there's anything anyone can do because on an individual level, no one is an individual. There's no such thing as Tarzan living in the jungle. We all live in society. And I can make all the best intentions. And I can say to myself, you know, I'm not going to go back to jail. And I'm going to get up every morning. And I'm going to set my alarm clock to get up on time. And however crummy I'm feeling, I'm going to make myself do my hair and brush my teeth and get dressed. And I'm going to apply for jobs. I'm going to pound the street all day. That's not going to get you a job. And if it does, it's going to be a crappy job that doesn't pay a living wage. So I don't really know what people can do individually. I think that right now in the world of reentry, there's so much emphasis on this thing that's called desistance, which has to do with attitudes. It's the story that you tell. You need to have an attitude. You need to be able to tell a narrative of yourself as somebody who is a survivor, as someone who's not a victim, as someone who you know, is going to change their lives and who can imagine a better future. You know what? I don't believe in magic. And I don't believe in mind over matter. I think that matter is real. And I think that we have real material conditions of existence. So I think a lot can be done at the community level. But the communities that are most committed um, and most in need of resources for people who are coming out of um, histories with a criminal legal system don't have a lot of money. So I think at the policy level, far more money has to be channeled into communities to be able to do the kinds of things I was talking about. Oh my gosh, I think that if communities around Boston could have some kind of a, a soup kitchen where women like the women that I know could come and volunteer and serve food to kids who are hungry, who don't have enough to bring to school. Whoa, what a change that would make in their lives. Um, and that's a little thing, but it's a little thing that I think is symbolic of a direction to go in. Nobody wants to be seen as a, as, as a loser who just needs help their whole lives. We like to be seen as someone who can give to others, who can give back. And let's, I think we can make those opportunities for people. Yeah. No, I agree. And um, I think by having that sense of self and, you know, being able to feel like you're contributing in, in other ways like that can also open other opportunities for you. Um, you never know where that path may take you to. So it just it's just those little things, like you're saying, that people really could do or efforts that we really could make to just foster sense of self. Um, and community. And community while providing stable housing, because that is so essential. 
I definitely agree there. Um, I guess before we uh, get off of here, I do want you to talk a little bit about your book. I know you've kind of talked about because some of the individuals and the stories Mm. you have told, uh, but could you just give us a little information about your book, where we can find it, um, if people Mm. are interested in buying it? Um, Yeah. So the book is called Can't Catch a Break. That's the, the main title. And it's a quote from actually several of the women who said to me, I just can't catch a damn break. You know, I I finally get to the top of the housing list, but I've lost my birth certificate. And so I need to show that to get the housing. And But I need $25 to get the registry of vital records to get another copy of my birth certificate. And I don't have $25. The sense of just, I just can't catch a break. And then the subtitle is Gender Jail Drugs and the limits of personal responsibility. So the limits of personal responsibility speaks to this kind of ideology in the programs that the women are in, the drug treatment programs and other programs that an ideology of, you need to take responsibility for your life. You need to stop being a victim. Um, And I think there's limits to that. You know, nobody can take responsibility for their life because we don't live in vacuums. We live in the real world surrounded by other people and by real social processes and real economic forces and real political policies. The book can be found online, everywhere on Amazon, bookstores. And I also have a blog in which I've continued to document the women's lives since the book came out. So the book was based on the first five years of the study but there's now another 10 years. So like, I think I mentioned Francesca. I might've mentioned another woman or two. Um, I have a blog. It has a terrible name. I never came up with a clever name for it. It's susan.sered, which is my last name, dot name. I don't know why, but if you Google Susan Sered blog, you'll find it. And um, you know, if you read the book or part of the book and then um, browse through the blog, you'll find all kinds of updates and interesting stories of things that are happening to the women. I'm, I'm right now writing a, a, a blog entry about a woman named Daisy who's in the book. Um, so it's, I, it's interesting and the blog is free. Um, I would also like to put in a quick plug for a group I'm involved in. It's called the Women and Incarceration Project. And it's, um, it's centered at my university, at Suffolk University, and we're a group of um, mostly academics and lawyers and social workers and students who have come together initially to push back against the former Republican governor, um, Governor Baker's plan to spend $50 million to build a new women's prison in Massachusetts. We sort of felt that for that money, they could just build a house for each of the women who's incarcerated in Massachusetts and give her a nice house. Um, you know, the numbers are not big here. Um, and so we're continuing to work for decarceration in Massachusetts. Or put the money to some of the social services that you were just talking about as well. $50 million mm-hmm. um, could be utilized for that and like you said the housing as well okay well <laughs> I, you know, I I really hope that that all goes well and um, I'm looking forward to your new blog post and the information I will make sure that I put 
the blog link in the description box so our audience okay. can go to it, um, as well as the additional projects that you're working on. Okay. I'll make sure I link those. Um, before we get off of here, I do want to ask uh, two questions, if that's okay. The first one just being, are there um, any recommendations you have as far as a media, books, I know we just talked about yours, or other resources that you would suggest for our audience to seek out if they want more information so about. I'm guessing that a lot of people have read this, but I'm in love with the book Halfway Home. Mm -hmm. Oh, I have that book. <laughs> I would, I would, and I'm old enough that the author's name went out of my head. It's Ruben, Ruben, I forgot his last name. I'm feeling stupid about this. No, um, he's, I, a, he's a wonderful human being. Yes, I can't think of his last name either. Uh, Jonathan Miller, Reuben Jonathan. Jonathan, Miller. yeah, he's just a wonderful human. I just what can I say? I've, I've corresponded with him a bit. He's just an extraordinary human being, and the book is about men, um, not about women. And I just I would recommend that everybody read it. I'm going to assign it to my students the next time I teach a course on this topic and. Uh, it's just a superb book. Okay. Yeah, it's on. I have that book as well. I haven't gotten to it yet. I'm reading the, um, right now I'm currently reading the new Jim Crow um, book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it, it's it's definitely on my list because I, I recently bought it. Um, but yeah, thank you for that. Um, yeah, so Halfway, Halfway Home is really readable because yeah. it's kind of his memoir of his work, of his, his relationship with his brother. It's, um, it's just such a sensitive, I, I don't have enough good words for it. Fabulous book. Well, look, I'm definitely looking forward to reading it and um, I'll make sure I put like book recommendations also yeah. in the um, subscription box as well. So people can just check it out if they're interested. Um, and my last question for you is um, if there's one thing you want our audience to remember about our conversation or just to remember about justice involved women, what would that be? The vast majority of justice-involved women are not criminals in the sense that criminals are portrayed in TV shows. They're not horrible, dangerous people who did bad things. They're far more likely to be victims than perpetrators of any kind of violent crime. Um, they have, for the most part, lots of health problems, lots of life challenges. They're just not criminals. And um, the second half of that is that when you hear people talking about desistance and desisting from crime, bear in mind that most women who are involved in the criminal legal system are not really hardened criminals. So there's nothing for them to really desist from. You know, they're not desisting from, you know, living a wild life of bank robbery and now they're going to become upstanding citizens. I mean, how do you desist from the trauma of having been raped when you were nine years old and having lost custody of your children when you were sent to prison. It's that's desistance is the wrong language. So that's what I would hope people would remember. Yes, ma'am. And thank you for that. And um, as always, we are so appreciative to have you on and uh, just sharing your expertise, sharing your experiences. I hope that our audience really um, can get some new information out of this, take some information, share it with someone who may not be familiar with this information. Um, but we are so thank you. We are so thankful. Um, and thank you. And thank you for inviting me. Bye-bye.
Uh, yes, ma'am. But before you get off, uh, I do want to say I will make sure that I put all of Dr. Sarid's information in the description box for you all. Yeah. And if you're interested in learning more about More Life, just follow us on Instagram and More Life The Reentry Podcast and make sure you push the subscribe button. Thank you. Thank you.